0: Three, Three, two, two, one, One. and and, here
1: we go! Cheese, wine, and creatives. Hello everyone and welcome to this first lockdown session with the wonderful Simon Whiteside. Uh, he is a composer, arranger, orchestrator, and um, we recently also worked on a project together of uh, transcribing uh, Marty, Page and Mel Torme, Dettet, um stuff. And um, I'm currently sitting in my room uh, in lockdown on a rather grim Wednesday, but I've been uh, feeding my plants and... Um, uh, watering my plants, and they're growing very nicely. Anyway, you don't need to know about that. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the cheese, wine, and creative lockdown session. Here we cheese, go! Cheese, wine, and creatives. Hello, uh, Simon Whatside. How are you doing?
2: Not too bad, thanks. Uh, in the current situation, rather happy I'm not uh, already coughing and... Uh, Spluttering and lying on my deathbed. How about you? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Bet you're ha- ha- happy you don't have what I have. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sure well um do you want to know about education and those sorts of things where i studied and um uh, for degree i went to bath university I studied music on the what's now the bath spa university campus but my degree is from the university of bath i think i was the last year to have the annexed degree which was the same as the bath school of art which was validated by the uh, the university and then right. um, I, for a short while, worked not in music, as a bookseller for Waterstones, uh, straight after college, but couldn't really uh, avoid music. So uh, I was still gigging, obviously, as well, as a jazz pianist. And then I managed to get into the National Film and Television School at Beaconsfield and do the three-year post Music for film course, as it was then, I think it's now a two year masters course with an actual qualification at the end yeah it was really good. I mean, for Rob Lane and I were there, and, and in fact roxana panofnik um the classical composer, but she had to drop out and uh so Rob Lane and I were there, and we we had it was the changing of the guard at that point, so they had loads of people having to finish their final films because it was quite a loose, almost like a production company ethos before. So sometime, you know, Nick Park took seven years to make a grand day out, I think. Uh, right. Most of which was done at the film school, and the last bit, Ard- Ardman came in and said, we'll get this done a bit quicker and fund it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Uh, and um, so animators were often there for up to ten years making their films and directors would sometimes be there a bit longer. So there was this massive sort of output of get these projects finished, and Rob and I, and the the more senior composers, there was a guy called Simon Lambros there at the time. Um, right. Stephen Daltrey was another composer there at the time. And yeah, we just we just got masses of films to work on, you know, 20-minute films, basically short films. But loads and loads of them. So we got loads of experience working with people and uh, and with uh, different. You know, I did about five animations and five live actions. It was really in the last my last year, I think. And that's... As varied as classical and jazz and soul music and loads of different things. It was brilliant, actually, really brilliant for us, just to get and and working with equipment learning how to use mixing desks, learning how to use samplers, uh, back before everything was inside the computer really as well. So, and in fact, everything was cut on film even then. Right. Um, and dubbed on tape initially. I think, our f- I'm not sure if some of our later films were electronically dubbed, um, but yeah, we still had the original synchronised to the projector dubbing machines and they're called dubbers, they're, that's actually the name of the machine. Oh wow. Made by Swiss watch engineer, precision engineering massive great oh. things the size of a wardrobe reel of, <clears throat> and a reel of magnetic tape on the front which has sprocket holes in it which co- correspond to the sprocket holes of the film and you usually right. have, on a, on a Hollywood film you'd have multiples of those many, you know, sort of 16 17 18 19 20 maybe more all synchronized mechanically we had yeah. we had four output machines and one recording machine right so two of those machines were taken up with the dialogue tracks because you always have mm-hmm. two two tracks of dialogue one was sound effects one was music and um, they were all mixed in fact i was talking to someone about the anvil it's called the um The mixing theater there, and at the very back of that hall, which is basically a cinema with no seats in it, projected onto a big screen. uh, At the back, behind the screen, there was a real reverb room: microphone at one end, speaker at the other end, and the the wall with the microphone in was movable, so you could make the reverb bigger or smaller. You just literally fed stuff into that room and recorded it back through the onto the master. Yeah, I don't know yes. if that was in use. I know I know I went and looked at it. Um, I don't know if it was actually in use during our time there. But that's effectively what Capitol Records reverb is. It's uh, chambers with speakers in them and microphones in them. So it was a, it's a it's a it's an old technique from the movies which maybe why Capital had it, because it was, obviously it was Los An- built in Los Angeles. So. Sure, well obviously there's some things have changed since then. Um, Rob and I were lucky because we did our first professional work while still at film school, and that meant right. that we could use the studios, uh, we didn't have to have masses of our own kit. I mean, I happened to be doing um, I was doing a, a four nights a week in the same restaurant as a jazz pianist at that point in time as well. Wouldn't be able to manage it these days, the up late and start early stuff, but no. um. <laughs> but i so i was earning like 120 quid a week which doesn't sound like much you get that for one gig these days but um i was earning 120 pounds a week which i was putting into equipment so i had a couple of roland um sound boxes which i carried in a in a big in a flight case which i could put over my shoulder and uh you know what size i am people um named named it my lunchbox because i'm so huge <laughs> Uh, Great, And it had a couple of, uh, I think my first ones were Roland 880s, which were rack mount versions of the JV80, which gave me 16 channels of uh, audio. All right. right. Um, uh, well, actually, kind of 15, because two of them were drums, had to be drums, because channel 10 was drums. Right. But it had, yeah, they had, there were eight channel machines. And then, while at film school, I upgraded to a JV ten eighty and a Akai sampler, and um, that's what was in my little box. Oh, and a Proteus orchestral, I think I had in the box as well. So, nice. I, but we, you know, we were working on Atari computers at that point, so everything was um, pretty basic. You know, you, everyone was excited with a one megabyte memory computer, <laughs> you know, and yeah. five hundred kilobytes of that was the program that you put in on a floppy disk. So things really changed and but we did do quite a, we did um together we did a few jobs um the secrets of porton down which is a really interesting documentary about the chemical weapons um research uh, establishment and you know that that they're working flat out now to try and get a, a cure for this covid-19 at places like that uh and we did another one called Stockpile about the rather hopeful at the time decommissioning of nuclear weapons between the agreement between America and Russia to de decommission their arsenals. Right. Uh, and that was kind of a history of atomic warfare as well, which was really interesting.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. yes, it certainly would.
2: It'd be all about the toilet rolls.
1: Yeah, yeah. But uh <laughs>
2: and then Rob got his first feature film, which I helped on as a copyist by hand. Uh, still. Nice. <laughs> Sibelius was just out Sibelius came out in ninety one, I think. Oh, no. And oh. Rob Rob actually bought a an Acorn computer, which I had at my house because I did the, the, the so I, I've been on Sibelius since it was new. right
1: um
2: and seen all the comings and goings of various things yeah. and it, um but yeah the first film we did was handwritten and uh i think that's what made rob decide to get sibelius on on acorn because he, he couldn't he's, he's quite a up to the wire composer like you know right. nearly all film composers but he's particularly up to the wire Right. And, um, <laughs> and anything to make the process quicker and give him more time to write, he he embraced heartily. So that's, um, yeah, so that was interesting to be at the beginning of Sibelius. Their original yeah. help, their original helpline had the actual Finn brothers on it. And wow. uh, I remember their, their approach to help was you'd phone them up and say, I'd like to do this. And their first thing was, well, why do you want to do that then? Cause it was all very much you know in development really even though it was out yeah. um yeah. and you know no chord symbols to start with i mean if you follow the de- development of dorico very similar development you know get get a working product out there in its basic form and add and add features as you go i think it makes massive sense if you're a cubase user particularly because yeah. it, it it is the note so when um cubase um so when I, when i was at film school there were there was cubase on atari and there was notator which became logic and the idea of notator was that it worked off notation and cubase right. worked off the piano roll and they were actually that different to start with. And slowly they've merged to be, you know, very similar. But what's interesting is that I don't know if have you heard of Digital Performer? That's what uh some people still use it. I think um yeah, I, I know some people still use it. I'm trying to think who I know who uses it, who is famous. Um Yes, it'll come to me. But, uh, oh, George Fenton, I think he uses um, Digital Performer. And that had had a thing called Composer's Mosaic, which was another desktop publishing program for music. And there was a, a copyist, I don't know if she's still around and working, but there was a copyist called Fiesta Mei Ling, who was an expert on that. but again if you used digital performer your notation seamlessly kind of went across to that program so the dorico thing is sort of a reinvention of that in a way which is a sort of better notation end of because notation and logic is possible it just isn't very good
0: Yeah well I mean, I think I
2: think um I think having some jazz skills helps but if there if there's one other area of music where transcribing is the thing it is film music and I mean we live in a bit of a golden age if you're a film music student because when Rob and I were at film school if we wanted to do something like um Rob w- would often set me a transcription challenge of I really like this cue from I don't know uh, the hollow man or something um which was right. uh jerry goldsmith i think i like i like i like this particular cue can you transcribe it and that was how you got the notation because no one published anything the the, the concept of film music as a uh, sort of staple of classic fm or something like that didn't exist really so yeah. there were recordings obviously john williams released the star wars score originally uh in 77 or were, whenever that um whenever that came out after the film but and there are albums but there was no no concept of keeping the sheet music plus there was right. the great i think it was MGM or warner brothers a had, had a warehouse fire which wiped out most of the archive of old film paper yeah. paper scores i know um that's what partly what john wilson's project was wasn't it to reconstruct yeah, these yeah, old scores I mean, into notation yeah. Yes, well, I think also Andrew a very big, big influence on that, wasn't he? I think he yeah, was, yeah. he was the right hand man.
1: He's, yeah, he's also great. Um, so me and you have something in common that we've both worked uh, in uh, in film and well in TV and film and doing like little cues for musicians, you know.
2: Yeah, well, I suppose the big difference is that, you know, we we would say that there's two words for it. So I prefer the word source music in the sense that you can see the source of the music on the picture. So it might yeah. be a radio or a real band or a record player. Some form of actual playback device or human being is on the screen making music. Yeah. And therefore, when I was... At you know i the first term i learned for it was source music which makes sense but the um the academic world of having to rename something something more complex and important sounding is diegetic and non-diegetic music diegetic being generated by the film non-diegetic being generated by a composer and stuck onto the film too
1: many words yeah i just too many words
2: i just think it you know it's fine if that, if that's the term you want to use it it I think it's not very um listener friendly if people are interested in film music outside the no. uh, it, uh, but it's academic friendly if you want to write a thesis so pick your yeah. pick your audience yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so the big difference between music that's happening that's being shot on the film is that to a certain extent you have to have a you have to have something to play to uh, therefore you write the yeah. music first and that normally ends up being a piece of music right it might be an it might be a piece of music that you so sometimes i've been asked to find pieces of music that would be suitable and in mr selfridge we for example had a piano trio playing some um frank bridge piano trio music and right. and then it's a question of getting a suitable playback um I mean, personally, I always try to do it electronically first, because my my experience from doing it is that you, if you take a piano trio into a recording studio and record those pieces, and then they play back to that recording, and then you send it to the edit and it gets butchered, you either have to re-record it or live with some pretty bad edits. Yeah. If you do it electronically, you can re-record the edits, but make them smoother and in a studio so you can still do the same same butcher job on it but you can make it work better and if you then record and also then you record 20 seconds rather than three minutes yeah so swing it swings and roundabouts but but i would say almost without exception unless it's a musical number that has been planned as a musical number i.e uh we're at a a vaudeville show and we're going to go from the top to the tail of this number with the audience as part of the show, then the, the, then the master track will always get edited. So,
1: yeah,
2: I mean, we have, I have done things where I've recorded people on the set and then we've, we did that for, um, the, the series of Mr. Selfridge that had uh, Alfie Bow in it. I think that was, uh, three or two or three. And we, I
1: haven't watched Mr. Selfridge. I'm, I'm sorry to say. Well, no, no, that's
2: fine. It was another nine o'clock, you know, nine o'clock Sunday yeah. evening thing. Yeah, I
1: think my parents watched it. I just.
2: Yeah, it was. It was a good. Wow. They they built an entire replica of of Selfridge's in in Neasden, Oh, Wow. Inside an old <laughs> inside an old carpet factory. Uh, it's ridiculous. And it stayed there for the whole. They built it high quality for episode series episode one series one and then it stayed there f- until the end of series four so they shot they kept going back to that same set right and developed. uh but and they had other sets in there as well that v- varied depending on the yeah but it was it was really interesting doing that and of, of course incredibly handy because I live in w- Wilsdon so yeah I, could ci- yeah I could cycle to work
1: yeah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> not very often that you can uh
2: not very yeah, often that happens, that. no exactly no, no, but no. I did, yeah, I was an orchestrator on that job uh two two films, and also sort of a MIDI translator for other orchestrators, so I'd right. tidy up the MIDI to send out to people like Jeff Alexander and Julian Kershaw um yeah. so that they had so they didn't have to do the grunt work. And I also yeah, did yeah. did some orchestrations as well. Uh yeah. probably the best one was um a big band uh, arrangement for Nick Hooper of one of his pieces for the Wizard Wheezy's shop. Yeah. Which was like the only bright moment in um the seventh uh, or six sorry, yeah, sixth yeah. film. Yeah. Uh, and but unfortunately it sat on the Backburner for a long time because um I think the Batman film was more successful than Warner Brothers had hoped it might be, and <laughs> they postponed the the launch of Harry Potter not to have you know to even out their blockbusters if you sort of I mean yeah
1: yeah
2: um, um and then they decided that there wasn't any jazz in Harry Potter, so they they music edited some previous music of Nick's to put over that scene, but it's on the album, which is nice. Yeah, I mean, I'll be fair, they were not 100%, there, there was obviously some disagreement about it. They it, it was going to be recorded and then it wasn't going to be recorded and then they decided they would record it um, yeah. around the time of the, of you know, the, all the other recording sessions. So it was a, it was definitely someone higher up was not 100% happy about it. Yeah. And in the end if it sits around that gives people much more time to think about it and there was no rush yeah. um, on the dub I don't think Yeah, that's a good one. Um, the bottom line is, well, my, uh, my my tutor and Rob's tutor at uh, film school was Francis Shaw, who was at the Guildhall as well um, as a classical right. composition tutor. I don't I don't know? Um, I would have thought he would have retired by now, because <laughs> that that was thirty years ago. Um, yeah. But uh, he said to me. As film composer, be be prepared to compromise, but don't compromise on your compromises. I thought that put right. it. I thought that put it quite well in the sense that, if you go along saying this is what the this is what your music is, uh, you probably won't last long in the film industry, no. w- un- unless you adapt. And there are some composers, very famous composers, Gabriel Yared and Mancini and uh, Morricone, all. Worked in a certain degree in that way, which is they would pre-record things as pieces of music, and right. and give it to give it to the film to use as they saw fit, almost like a bes- yeah. almost like a bespoke library. But um, they had to change their ways uh, because uh, you know technology really more than anything else made it the way. It is now which is that you could almost hear what you're going to get as a director uh, with with decent orchestral mock-ups so you can actually have more control it's a bit like being able to have to do virtual car mechanics on your car via a computer program so that when you go to see the car mechanic and they say oh I think your trouser press Montgomery's got a sprocket missing you can say well I know you're lying (laughs) (laughs) even though I can't fix it myself I do know where the trouser press Montgomery is and it's got a fine sprocket thank you very much (laughs) and that's uh, and directors have now and producers are now in that position where they they have much more ability to say yeah I like that but can we change this please and I do you know they do realise that it's not finished but they know that it's going to be pretty much like that just better 10% 20% better When it's recorded real. And you know, John Williams just sit down at the piano and still does I think and play it to Spielberg and say, Oh yeah, we're gonna well, you know, when it's orchestrated it'll sound bigger and Spielberg trusts him because they've worked so well together. Well, I'm sure, uh, I, I mean, you know. they compromise, I'm sure he compromises, but it's about, it's about, uh, it, the working relationship is key in these situations, and you, it it's not, it's good to be a jazz musician in terms of the ears thing, the flexibility thing, the ability to make up music quickly, as in improvising um all those things are really good the bad side of jazz is is not great to be an elitist depressive (laughs) in the sense that (laughs) um uh, um, you know this is the way it's done and i believe in this you know because jazz is a lifestyle isn't it it's a it's almost a religion it's got you, you you come up with a doctrine that you think is the way to do it and you pursue that doctrine and try and perfect it and that that does doesn't fit well in in film music there was a book i read no. um there was a book i read called from score to screen i think something like that um,
1: it's a Mancini one
2: no no it's uh, no it's a different it's a different one it's 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 written by a music editor and what's good about it is that he talks about people one of his his favorite compliment is when people say oh good choices as in as in this really works these these choices really work with the picture so um right and it might be that you're you know because film music eats itself you know it's this you know the famous um king's row story that the Star Wars theme is a version of, really. So there's yeah. an Eric Corngold, I think it's. Is it Corngold or Steiner? One of the greats. And John Williams oh. thought, well, actually, what we've got here is, like, these are spaceships, but they could be seaships. So he referred to, um, you know, the squash-buckling scores of uh, of the sort of Flynn era, Errol Flynn, with people like... Right. Corn Gold and the like who wrote and and it, and the film king's row has got a theme that one might say is remarkably similar to star wars All right. All right. but you know it's di- it's different but it's you can you can feel the dna which is why the which is why the uh sort of intellectual property side of film music is getting very complicated right Right. Because and and could in some respects is making it worse is making film music worse because people are having to write stuff that doesn't sound enough like something else to be sued, which means yeah, and, yeah. and also kind of therefore sticking to generic things you know, I mean you you yeah, you, yeah. you couldn't you couldn't start a film like this and not get sued probably, oh well of course I don't have a piano because I'm recording. Um, but you know, if you, if you had that up and down major minor seventh chord thing, everyone would say you're ripping off, (laughs) ripping off vertigo. And not only would everyone say you're ripping off vertigo, but you might well get sued by Bernard Herrmann's estate for it. Uh, Yeah. Well, I've got a theory about what makes a good arranger, which is essentially what an orchestrator, an arranger, as we know, are fairly similar roles, i.e. Yeah, yeah. the primary material is not yours. Yeah, uh, yeah. And one of the things I've noticed, and um, I'll steer this slightly back to our mutual understanding of jazz, is that, um, as you know, because you've helped me out on a, with this with the transcription, I'm a big Marty Page man, and uh, oh yes, <laughs> and uh, and I really like his uh, arrangements of other people's tunes, but his yeah. but his own yeah, tunes, he can't arrange as well somehow. And my right. my theory with that is, and I've thought of th- th- about this for a long time in uh, in in not only in his case but in other arrangers' cases. Is that what tends to happen? Is that when you get to a problem in an arrangement of someone else's music, you can't recompose it to get out of that problem. You have to come up with the solution to that problem. Yeah. Whereas when you're writing a piece, if it's like, it uh, doesn't quite work, you just rewrite it so that it does work. And that's a very different process. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I do think, I mean, what some of the great, some of the really successful film composers aren't that knowledgeable about music and the technique of of music but they're extremely good songwriters in a sense that they they write really great tunes and it's hard to write really great tunes and it shouldn't be belittled um (laughs) yeah and i think sometimes um people don't get that Uh, that writing a very strong memorable theme if that's what's required is a big deal, and I don't even think, if I'm brutally honest, I don't even think John Williams is that good at the big themes. I think what he's brilliant at is all the technique of taking you through the film and and all the yeah. adapting of the themes is what he's brilliant at. But his main themes they're not the they're not the strongest, really. I mean, they're they're memorable, but I don't know about you, but I find them, you know, nowhere near as compelling as say Jerry Goldsmith's big tunes. Or Henry, yeah. or Henry Mancini's or, big tunes, or you know, uh,
0: no yeah. Way. Yeah.
2: Well, another another thing, I think it was Francis Shaw might have been um, uh, we had Oh, what was his first name? Um, Bamba Gascoigne's brother um, was our took over. He was a keyboard player did all the big jerry goldsmith things over here first person in britain to earn a fair light i think um brian gascoigne all right. brian. Oh, right. brian gascoigne um i think right. i think he might have said this he said um in terms of your career you you're you, it's much better to write a bad score for a good film than a good score for a bad film Yeah, because yeah. your you, the success of your music is reliant on the success of the film and um yeah. 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 you know We all know what Star Wars sounds like, but it could have sounded, they could have booked someone else and it would have sounded different and those films could have been equally as successful and then all the themes would be memorable, someone else's music. Well, I mean, it's not, uh, I mean, I I did, in fact, I did the, originally I did um, five, uh, with help of Gareth Le as well, um, did five of those tunes for my 12-piece band, and I looked at the uh, source material, and that was in 2000, actually, so 20 years ago, and and actually I was, my attention was brought to it by Anita Wardell. Uh, when the, the Australian jazz singer, in case people don't know who she is, uh, <laughs> we'd gone to Cyprus on a jazz tour arranged by a guy who ran a bar in West Hampstead and has a place in Cyprus. And, you know, in, in the downtime, everyone was doing the classic jazz musicians listening to each other's favourite album stuff, and she got got the Mal Torme out as a good example of when a singer's really in exactly well when when a singer is with no disrespect to singers in general um another musician in the band not a singer on top of the band one of the things as you know i've been um uh when i was at when i was at did my degree my in my final year i did composition major performance minor so i had to do the same recital as the performers and they had to do a major recital and they had to do a second instrument recital right, uh, right. there were some slightly different i didn't have to write a thesis about the music that I was performing that they had to do academically, but I had right. to do the same, the same basic um, program, you know, length of program, and level. And belie- yeah. believe it or not, I, I was I did that as a singer. I was a baritone, All right. classical baritone singer. And you, you know that I've been recently singing and playing piano. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. At Bar
2: Swift, at Bar Swift. and um, that's kind of re-dusting off the voice a bit to make those gigs a bit more flexible and a bit more interesting for me, really. Um,
1: yeah.
2: And one of the hu- things that's really hard to do, even though I've been improvising on the piano since um, the year dot. I mean, well, I'm 55 now, and I did my first jazz gig when I was 15, so. I'm starting to get the hang of it a bit and uh, but <laughs> a long time ago but scat singing is hard it's very very hard it's to hard. it's hard to make it up and what what I find quite interesting is that actually I get the ideas quicker but if so in a way my idea to finger is slower but I have more history to draw on more practice more muscle memory all that sort of stuff uh i probably can realize my ideas more quickly with my voice but i to get them accurately out that's bloody hard so i think you i think you're right i think maltorme probably busked his original versions cuz he could play the piano well uh, yeah, uh yeah. he was a great drummer as well yeah uh, yeah so yeah. that's why he's, i think so rhythmically accurate And so I think he probably did busk them early on and then refined them. And also that allowed him to yeah. to, to work with um Marty Page and actually have some of those ideas scored. So when he does in, in um in uh Too Close for Comfort, when he goes that that's properly comped it's comped by the band along with that phrase it's not it's not an accident you can tell it's not an accident so so he he must have sung that to marty page and they said right that will behind that will go whatever so yeah i think it it's a very it was a it was a great collaboration i mean i think they were both quite hard people to work with and i think it wasn't entirely you know it wasn't a love fest it was quite a you know quite a yeah. two big minds you know but the result yeah. the yeah. result is undoubtedly some of the, well i think some of the best vocal jazz out there available yeah. from that yeah. period
0: <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's, it's three saxes, three? yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. A- alto tenor baritone.
2: Yeah. No. yeah. French uh, French horn and tuba.
0: Well, I mean,
2: uh, I mean this is it's 10 years after it came out, but it, the one thing I the one record that's had su- had such an enormous effect especially on west coast jazz was the Miles Davis Birth of the Cool sessions. Obviously, with yeah. Give, yeah. Gil Evans involved, um, and and what's impressive about that is that that really didn't exist very long. That that band, you know, it was it was a short-lived, one-year right. right. project. They made one record. Right. They did a few gigs. It was mostly a rehearsal band at Gil Evans' place with that lineup, right. and. Um, it has had such a massive influence on, on particularly the West Coast, and certainly that Maltorme really wanted. You know, I think his initial idea was, can we use that nonet, and and you know, then a bit of negotiation about, well, how about we, because I I can write for this dec-tet already. How about we, we change two of the instruments? Because basically what he did was he. Uh, in his normal dec-tet, there's a bass trombone, not a tuba so that was a straight that was a straight swap so the only thing he's really added is the is is the um he's dropped one tenor trombone and added a french horn instead Bigger. Yeah, make. I th- Well, it's the conical bore of those instruments, I think, which which has a different overtone <laughs> yeah. structure, um, and therefore, it, I suppose it sounds more like a brass band, does not it? A colliery band. Yeah. That, that the yeah. rich, that yeah, sort yeah. of beautiful richness of the of the colliery playing, colliery band playing quiet, just a look, yeah. a glorious yeah. sound. And and they're practically all conical instruments, apart from the one rogue trombone in there. Um, everything's yeah. based on the, on the horn shape, you know, the flugel horn and the cornet and the, yeah. all those sorts of things. Yeah. And it's just got a warmer sound, hasn't it? Um, a rounder, yeah. a rounder sound. And whereas the, the yeah. trumpet and the trombone have a, a sharper, a more bright, more, yeah. more, yeah. more, well, for one of, the, for those, uh, anyone listening who's a synth head, <laughs> sure. trumpet right. and trombone are kind of sawtooth waves and French horns are square waves, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. it's that yeah. more smooth. Um,
1: yeah.
2: and I I think yeah. therefore exactly. that that combination helps to bridge the gap between the saxes and the brass.
1: Yeah. Sonic yeah, sonically.
2: Well, um, I think I'm going to paraphrase one of the great jazz educators. I can't remember which one of the C's it is. Coker, or who's the other guy who begins with C? Oh, God. You know who I mean? Jerry Jerry Coker, or Hal Crooks, someone like that. Hal Crooks, Crooks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Someone like that. In one of their books, it says, there are three stages to learning jazz and the first one is imitation the second one is uh oh now i'm going to forget it aren't i going to have to edit this one uh <laughs> i have to say them i'll say them quickly and then uh, yeah so it's imitation then another word beginning with i which means to internalize it what's that uh imitation internalization and then basically making it up yourself Yeah, uh, and he's got a nice three letter word three things that start with i innovation that's his last one
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: right well i'm sorry about that you'll have to make what you can of that but i think it's true for film music as well you imitate your you, you like thomas newman then copy him learn yeah. get inside his style learn what he does assimilate that style that's it assimilation it's not i yeah. Imitation, assimilation, innovation. Um, and then you get that internalised, and then you start writing, and it's your language. And you, you, you as a jazz player yourself, you understand, and an arranger, you understand that it, it te- you, you have to make those early... You can't play C major until you've learned how to play C major. There's no two ways around it. You've got to learn how to do it, and then you can do it. But then you start using C major yeah. to play tunes in, and it... You're not thinking about the scale of c major anymore it's that's it's that process I think that's true for film music as well, but I think the added thing about film music and it and you know there's plenty we know plenty of jazzers who have an abrasive personality um <laughs> and still are successful jazz players it yeah. it's yeah. a hell of a lot more difficult to get on in a collaborative industry if if you can't work with other people and exactly. um exactly. Yeah. work on your personal skills and you know really put park your ego if you can i mean i find i find following a meditation sort of package regularly 10 minutes a day of just breathing and trying not to think and when you do think not worrying about thinking and get focused back and yeah. i find that's quite useful just to stop reacting you know try to cut down your reactant reactions and just yeah. just listen mm. As my granddad used to say, you've got one mouth and you've got two ears. Use them in the same proportion. Thanks, Giles. Stay well. And that's your lot. Sorry,
1: we don't have any more. Uh, so please do tune in next time. Uh, and I hope to see you then. All right. Bye. Cheese, wine and creative.